Revelation 11, beginning in verse 3, tells us, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of the life of God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now just for supernatural grace from your spirit so we can continue to worship you now as we've prayed and sang and fellowshiped. Lord, we now offer this time of worship to you as we give our fullest attention to the authoritative truth of your word. We ask this morning that you would once again write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts and that by your spirit's ministry, Lord, you not only prepare us, but by your spirit, you would now speak to us through what you have already spoken in your written word here and that we would each have an ear to hear what your spirit saying to this part of the church this morning. So we ask, bless this time, Lord. We offer it to you. We pray this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, speaking for God and declaring his truth, whether it's communicating God's word in some setting or Maybe it's sharing the gospel with someone who you know needs to meet Jesus Christ or just sharing the word of God in a conversation with someone where you find it's pertinent to tell them the truth. Though it is always right, it is certainly not for the faint-hearted. In fact, we find that when we do such, it becomes something that many a time, sadly, will anger those in their pride if they're not living right morally or spiritually. And if we are someone who needs acceptance or craves approval, then we are going to find it extremely difficult to communicate the truth of God's word on his behalf. In fact, at times, even when we speak for God, we may experience attacks against our lives that bring some degree of persecution or harm or seek to stop us from speaking what we are. But look, because God loves people and he wants what is best for them, for their welfare, that they would be spared from destructive paths that we have all maybe at one time been on in our own lives, or people may be currently on in their lives, sinful, self-destructive behavior, God will continuously make efforts to speak to people again and again and again and again, even in their persistent rebellion. And one of the ways that God will do that is he will seek to confront people and speak to their hearts to seek their change for good by sending his servants into their lives 
to be a vehicle to communicate on God's behalf, to be a spokesman for God, to speak a prophetic word, to give them the word of the Lord, to declare truth in their life. And these spokesmen for God will say to people what is on God's heart when he wants to declare his truth to someone who's either believing a lie or is living in deception or darkness and needs to hear God's voice because God in his hopefulness is wanting that people would humble themselves and be responsive to what he is saying. Yet those things said, the reality is sadly again and again in human history, many a times people become resistant to God's voice. They get angered when God tries to speak to them. They dismiss God's voice. They even ignore God and refuse to listen to what he's saying. We see this throughout human history. We see that pattern in the word of God. Second Chronicles 24 tells us that people had turned away from the Lord, and it says, but God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but the people would not listen. In Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter 7, God declares through him, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed their stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, God says, I sent my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. This nation has not obeyed the Lord and its God or responded to his correction. Sadly, we see this pattern throughout human history with Israel and with all of humanity. And once again, in this coming seven-year period of tribulation that we've been looking at here in the book of Revelation of late, as God is forced in that coming time period to judge righteously humanity for their rebellion against God, for their rejection of the truth and his offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, even in the midst of those coming horrible times, once again, God will be pleading with and making efforts, even in the midst of his judgment upon mankind, trying to communicate to their hearts to spare those who are still perhaps willing to listen. And we see God doing this in various ways. And once again, here in our text this morning, God is doing it again. This time we see God authorize these two witnesses to send them forth to prophesy his word to the people. Yet tragically, once again, we see though they reached some people that many were angered by their statements, many were offended by their speaking of the word of God and do all they can to harm them and even stop and remove their voices from saying what things that they were. Look with me in our verse three as our text opens. It tells us that God, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So as an endeavor, as I said, once again, to speak to humanity, to reach people in their rebellion and their rejection, God will authorize these two men to bear witness to his truth for a set period of time. And it's very evident here. There's a duration, a set period specified during the seven-year period of tribulation that God will authorize and assign these two witnesses to speak on his behalf. The duration of their ministry is told us there in verse 3. Look at it. It says that they will prophesy 1,260 days. Now, again, in that day when they used a 30-day calendar, this was much more typical Adding that out, a 30-day calendar equates to 42 months or clearly three and a half years, which indicates for one half, exactly one half of this seven-year period of tribulation that God will be judging the earth, 
these two witnesses will be speaking with God's authorization. Now, considering the factors, and I'm not going to go into it, you're free to disagree at the end of the day. I don't think it's that critical. It seems most likely that they will be communicating during the first three and a half years of the seven-year period of tribulation. One of the evident things to me is that even after they die, it tells us for three days their bodies still lay in the streets, and then more events seem to happen afterwards. So it seems uh, that it's very likely that it was in the first three and a half years that they actually were ministering. Now, these two men are assigned their ministry, and they're not only authorized, but it seems they're supernaturally empowered by God to be able to go forth with supernatural power to fulfill their ministry God sends us to them to. It tells us here in verse 3 that they will be referred to as his witnesses. And again, a witness is someone, just like in any court of law, a witness is someone who bears verbal testimony to the truth, whether it's someone who witnessed an accident, so they're giving testimony to validate the facts. There's someone who is... Uh, verifying this is what happened. And so there's someone who dispels wrong ideas. There's someone who validates the truth and dispels any wrong belief about something. They're communicating the truth to validate what's right. And it tells us these two witnesses will be prophesying for this three and a half year period. And when the Bible speaks of prophesying, it's referring to speaking what God wants spoken, basically declaring God's word. When someone is prophesying, they are functioning as a human instrument, a conduit whereby God speaks through them, but it's God who is the one speaking, and their voice, their body is just the instrument whereby God is saying what he once declared. And so this is what these two witnesses will be doing. They will be human vessels empowered by the Spirit, speaking on God's behalf, his Spirit-directed messages saying what God wants spoken and communicating to humanity during this time. Now, that is certainly a very serious responsibility, a very heavy stewardship, that someone would have a message from the Lord and they would say exactly what God wants spoken. Now, interesting, we're also told in verse 3 about these two witnesses who are prophesying, speaking God's word and declaring God's message. It says, verse 3, that they were clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth, probably the best picture in our mind we could get is if you picture like a burlap sack or something like that. Sackcloth was a, a itchy, uncomfortable, scratchy garment that they would wear, and it was intended to afflict the body when you wore it. So typically, we see sackcloth being worn throughout the Old Testament many times in other places in history when people would be grieving or mourning at the loss of a loved one. It was also worn at times as a way, as an act of repentance, that you were sort of hypersensitive and you were afflicting yourself in repentance and remorse over your sin. So as the Bible tells us here, they were wearing sackcloth, these two prophetic witnesses. It's likely indicating that their prophecies and their ministry as they witness on God's behalf will be characterized by a message of repentance, that what they're seeking to do is as God's empowering them and speaking through them, is to express to humanity God's remorse or God's grief over their dark ways and their sinful activities and that what humanity has been doing and is doing at that time still was a grief to God, that it was filthy and it was displeasing to God. And they're calling humanity to wake up and to repent to turn from their wrong deeds, to recognize the last window of opportunity before it's too late to respond to Jesus Christ. And clearly, they're calling attention to people's wrong behaviors and their sinful practices because it's very evident in the language of what we read together at the front of our study that humanity is not enjoying what they're saying to them. It goes on to tell us that literally people felt tormented by their messages so they obviously weren't saying, you're going to have a wonderful life. Let's just all, they, they weren't saying that kind of, they were saying strong things to confront people's sinful behaviors, to identify wrong actions, to acknowledge their sins, and to call them to turn from those things, to turn away and to turn to God for mercy and to embrace Christ before it's too late. 
So angry were they making people that, again, we see in the language that people wanted to routinely harm them, that they were seeking to kill them, and ultimately their lives end up being put to death in murder because of their righteous declarations that were tormenting the consciences of people. Well, verse 4 goes on to tell us of these two witnesses that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So as John's describing their ministry in kind of a picturesque way, it seems here that he kind of is alluding to Zechariah chapter 4. Remember, Zechariah in chapter 4 was sharing a vision there to encourage a man named Zerubbabel, who was a workman for the Lord. And in Zechariah 4, he gives this vision of a lampstand that's remaining lit because of the fact that it's being sustained by a continuous flow of oil. And the whole purpose of the vision was to encourage the, the worker of the Lord not to be discouraged, but to know that not by human might or by human power or ideas or ingenuity would he succeed in doing the work assigned by God, but that it would be by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. That not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, that the work would be accomplished and they would be able to finish the assignment given to them. Now, in that same imagery here, it seems that John, as he's speaking, as the spirit directs him, he pulls from that same imagery for these two witnesses who will prophesy in hard times doing their assigned ministry for the Lord. And he says of these two witnesses that he says, verse 4, these two witnesses are the two olive trees. And again, remember, olive trees would produce oil or olive oil, which was a common fuel in that day. And oil throughout the Old Testament is a common symbol used for the Spirit of God, the empowerment of the Spirit of the Lord. So whenever we see oil in the Holy Spirit, often it's in a typological way referring to the power of the Spirit. And he also says of these two witnesses that they are the two lampstands. And of course, lampstands provide light to diminish darkness. They shine light in the dark. And so these two witnesses, through their ministry and through their communication, would be shining light on the darkness. They would be shining light on evil. They would be revealing through their testimony what's pure, what's proper, what's righteous and moral and in so doing, would be shedding great light in regards to the dark things humanity was doing. And these two men, through their ministry, will be shining light in a dark world by the power of the Spirit of the Lord being supplied to them continually. And the reason they operate with such boldness and confidence, we're told there, is because at the end of verse 4, look at it, it says, they realize something, that they are standing not before humanity on earth, but notice it says they recognize in their ministry that they are standing before the God of the whole earth. In other words, these two men are bold because they realize that they are accountable before God for their assignment, for their ministry, for the words that they speak, for what they say to humanity. They aren't seeking approval or acceptance of humanity. They're seeking the approval of God. They want to make sure that what they say is acceptable in the sight of God and that God is pleased. And because they stand accountable to God, that gives them a degree of confidence and boldness that they would say accurately what God once spoken, despite the consequences, which were pretty severe, that came upon their lives. And look, in a similar way, by way of application for our lives today, all believers, you and I included, are called to, are we not, as Christians, to be witnesses for the Lord. To some degree, in our generation and in our sphere of influence, we are all called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that we are called to be, by Jesus, salt and light in a morally dark and a morally and spiritually decaying world, which is only, sadly, going to grow darker and darker as times continue to unfold until the latter days, ultimately, and these literal things are coming to pass on the earth. And we are instructed that we are to be light and we are to witness, but that the only way we can do that 
is by the continuous power of the Spirit of the Lord. That's the only way we'll ever do such. Our purpose on this earth as believers is to shine light in the darkness as long as we are here. That is one of the reasons why after I got saved in 1992, the Lord didn't the next day say, you're saved, you're ready for glory. Heart stopped beating, lungs stopped breathing, no more Tony as a casualty on the earth. Let's just get him right up into heaven. He could have done that, right? But the whole reason why after you're born again and you become a child of God, we continue to live is because there is a purpose for us We don't work for our salvation, but the Bible tells us that we are to work out our salvation. Paul says, that which I was apprehended for. He says, I have not yet apprehended what I was apprehended for. In other words, Paul understood the Lord apprehended him and saved him, not just to let him go to heaven and have the mercy of being spared from hell, but so that he could then be redeemed and used for the Lord for a set purpose on the earth to reach other people. And look, this world is growing darker and darker, and that is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 to us as Christians that you and I are the light of the world because the world is a dark place. Jesus himself said of his own declaration, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness but have the light of life. But interesting, Jesus knowing that by his spirit, The Spirit of the Lord dwells in every believer today. We are now the body of Christ. He's not here in a physical body anymore. He's resurrected. He's ascended back into glory. And now we, as his followers, have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, and we are now the body of Christ. And so Jesus said, you are now the light of the world. You're now to express my light, to be witnesses for me. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. Seek that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. And then he says this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Sound like the current news? Oh, why is everything so crooked and perverse? It's on the agenda. Here's the really sobering reality. It's not going to get better. No matter who we elect, no matter how much we politically stomp our feet, it's not going to get better on the earth. Do I hope and pray for a revival and a a sweeping of the Spirit of God and more souls to get saved and a final harvest? Absolutely. But the Bible's very clear that the latter days are described, the Bible says, in the last days, perilous times will come. And when he describes the perilous times, All he describes in that list, and when Paul tells Timothy, is all the horrible things about human nature, that men will become cruel and self-centered, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, And and he describes humanity decaying in that passage there. Look, you said, well, that's a really cheery New Year's thought. Thank you so much. 2024. But see, here's 2024. We're supposed to be light in the world. Instead of wasting my time or wasting our time doing this and that and whatever in 2024, to realize the best thing we can do with 2024 in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he says here in Second or Philippians 2, is that we would shine as lights in the word, world, holding fast the word of life. That's what we're called to be doing. That's the most purposeful way we could use our lives for another year. Ephesians 5 says it this way, to the church, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of things which are being done by the disobedient in secret. But all things that are exposed are made clear or revealed by the light. So as believers, we're called to let our light shine to live righteously in the midst of unrighteous people around us, to seek to let our life reflect something different, to shine the light on dark things. In the same way, people are not opposed in any way to being very bold and very forthright about what is filthy and perverse and destructive and disgusting. We should not be shy about what is righteous 
and good and pure and wholesome and represent what would help people's lives when other people are going to blow the trumpet on things that are destroying people's lives. And so we're called to be the light in this dark world to show what is right and what is moral and biblical and, and what is going to be helpful to people. And that cannot be done, as I said, by human effort alone. Just like these two witnesses were authorized and empowered, just like in Zechariah's vision, there was the oil from the lampstand that was empowering them. This can't be done in human effort. We need the oil and the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses as well. Again, Jesus alluded to this in Luke 24 when he said that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in Jesus' name to all nations, and you are witnesses of these things. And then he said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said very similarly, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice, Jesus said you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, empowering you supernaturally. And he didn't say, and you shall go witnessing for me. He said, you shall be witnesses unto me. Is going forth and witnessing and sharing the gospel important? But Jesus said, when we receive the baptism and power of the Holy Spirit, we'll be witnesses to him. In other words, our life will be a witness. The way we live out our life as a Christian will be the strong testimony to the world around us that will be glowing, and if you would, in a dark world, and that will create platforms, of course, to be able to then speak into people's lives. Both are important, but our life being a powerful witness is very, very critical. Now, you know that when you shine light into darkness, understand when people live in darkness and they want to remain in the dark, they're going to be offended, angered, and bothered and want to shut off the light. And that's why we see this happening in our text here. Look what verse 5 goes on to tell us of these witnesses. It says, if anyone wants to harm these two witnesses, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Notice, because what they were saying was causing offense and people wanted to harm these two witnesses speaking for God, God grants them, it seems, supernatural power to preserve their lives as they're fulfilling their ministry for this set period of time. Two different times there in verse 5, you notice the Holy Spirit twice, repetitiously, draws our attention to anyone who wants to harm them, indicating that that's what people were wanting to do. They were not only wanting to harm them, we know, of course, as we get to verse 7, the end goal wasn't just to harm them, it was to destroy them and to kill them, because ultimately that's what the Antichrist will see will be allowed to do, and people will celebrate their death. Yet those who try to kill and harm these two witnesses apparently were unable to succeed in doing such for a time period. The reason we're told here is they were granted this supernatural power to preserve or fend off their enemies to protect themselves. It tells us there in verse 5 that when anyone tried to harm them, that fire proceeded out of their mouth to devour their enemies. Now, that's much like what we saw God do in the Old Testament through the prophet Elijah, who was able on a few occasions, remember, to bring forth fire from heaven in the midst of his ministry. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah calls down fire upon the sacrifice there at Mount Carmel to defeat the false prophets of Baal. And then as well, in 2 Kings chapter 1, when multiple groups of soldiers came and mocked the prophet and sought to do him harm, Fire came down once again and devoured those soldiers as a way of protection for Elijah the prophet. And in the same manner, as a measure of protection to, to keep themselves functioning in their ministry, we're told that if anyone wants to harm these two witnesses, that fire proceeds from their mouth to devour their enemies. So they're basically, to a degree, somewhat, you might say, indestructible for a time period as they're fulfilling their ministries despite what came against them. God ensured they remained alive despite the resistance. 
Verse 6 says that these two witnesses also have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Again, that unique power exercised is also very characteristic of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah, trusting God's word, both prayed, we know from James chapter 5, as well as proclaimed that there would be no rain on the land for a period of time, and God brought about a shutting off of the rain for a season. In the same way, these two men, it says, have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Notice as well, the second half of verse 6 tells us that they also have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So these other miraculous signs and wonders should be very evident, speak very similar to the ministry of Moses in the Old Testament, which we see recorded in the book of Egypt where Moses was able to do the things described there in the end of verse 6. Now, notice, if you would, that nowhere in the text are these two witnesses directly identified or specifically and clearly stated who they are. So we cannot be certain nor dogmatic who these two witnesses will be in the tribulation period. Given the strong similarities in the miracles they perform like Elijah and Moses, some believe it's possible these two witnesses will actually be Moses and Elijah, a representation of the law and the prophets, having returned to earth to finish out part of their ministry as a representation of the law and the prophets and God's testimony to mankind. It is interesting, remember, Elijah never physically died he was uniquely taken off the earth, caught up, remember, in the whirlwind into heaven. And Malachi 4 does say that before the coming of the Lord, Elijah will come. We also know as well, no one knows the exact location of Moses' body and where he was buried. Jude tells us that the angels dispute with the devil over the body of Moses. Some believe it could be because his body had a future purpose and that this is that future purpose when he will be on the earth ministering with Elijah as one of the two witnesses. Moses and Elijah, remember, they also show up together at Jesus' transfiguration. So we know these two apparently do things together once in a while. <laughs> now, that being said, others think that this is Elijah and Enoch. And those who believe that believe because Enoch, remember, was that other unique individual in the book of Genesis who it says he walked with God and then he was no more. It seems in a way that he was kind of just caught up into glory as well and spared the death process. So some think, okay, it's Elijah and Enoch because both of those men never died physically, so they need to finish their life, experience physical death before they actually kind of culminate the end of their process. Now, I would say to that, keep in mind as well, that someday millions of Christians are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air in the rapture and are going to get to escape the physical death process. So uh, to say automatically, well, it has to be Elijah and Enoch because they both have to physically go through death, uh, there's a little bit of a quandary with that too. The bottom line here, folks, is this. This could be any two men empowered by God serving in similar patterns and power like the ministry of Elijah and Moses the bottom line is God doesn't name them. God leaves them unidentified. So anything we would do is just speculation in the whole process. Like many a times in ministry, perhaps God wants the focus to be on his power and not the human instrument. So you can feel free to think they are whoever you want them to be. The bottom line is I don't plan on being the earth while they're around ministering anyway. So when they get up to heaven, we can find out who they are. We'll be there waiting and ask them how it was when they witnessed for three and a half years. Verse 7 goes on to say, look, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. So God's word, notice here, makes it very, very evident, very specific, that these two witnesses as servants of God speaking on his behalf will not be silenced, 
They will not be stopped, and they cannot be killed until they've completed their God-ordained purpose to fulfill their ministry assigned to them. God's supernatural preservation was upon their lives until they finished God's assignment for their life as servants of the Lord. While God still had more ministry work for them to complete and certain things for them to do, God makes it very evident here no power of the devil, no power of any evil on mankind on this earth can cut short their God-intended lifespan to fulfill the set purpose of why they were called to minister. No one and nothing could end their personal testimony that they were to live out for Jesus. As they had things that were still to be done through their lives, no harm could bring an end to their life and to its assignment until God did everything through their life that he intended to complete as a servant of the Lord. It tells us there in verse 7, I have it circled, when they finish their testimony. When they finish, only once they finish their testimony and fulfill their life's ministry, only then could they, it says, be overpowered and could they be killed. Their earthly life had then been perfectly fulfilled the exact specified time. And look, folks, this is a truth that is applicable, again, to all of our lives as servants of the Lord today. Our life as a Christian has a set purpose as a follower of Jesus, to live out our Christian testimony. Again, we were not just saved for heaven and for glory alone. We were also apprehended into the Lord's army to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ on the spiritual battlefield, doing what the Lord's called us to do, bearing the armor of God, going through trials and tribulations, fulfilling our purpose, and our life has a set purpose as a follower of Jesus. It's why you've been given spiritual gifts. It's why you have a calling from the Lord on your life. And that calling of the Lord means that you have an assignment that the Lord has given to you to fulfill. And as you are fulfilling that assignment and the set things God's ordained for you to do and purposes of ministry, your life will continue to exist until that is finished. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that all of our days were written in God's book before they ever began. See, here's the reality. The reality is this. Nobody knows how big or how long their book is. That's the part sometimes we're a little shocked by. We automatically anticipate everybody's book is this long. Some people's book may be this long. Some people's book may be only this long. The bottom line is all of our days were written in God's book before one of them ever came to be. God knows the days of that. We live life a page at a time. That's the challenging part, right? And, and we're, oh man, I just, this page is horrible. That's okay, hang in there. You go to sleep tonight, you close your eyes, tomorrow you turn the page. God knows what's on the page tomorrow. Oh man, this season of my life, it really stinks. That's okay, some books have bad chapters. The next chapter, a turn of events may come. And the good news is, is every book, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, has a really great ending. The last chapters of the book of Revelation tells us the end of the book. It's a good ending for everybody in glory with the Lord. But the bottom line is in the interim, Ephesians 2 says that God has foreordained good works for us to walk in as Christians. So we are walking out the good works that God's foreordained for us to do, just like these servants. And only once we've finished our personal Christian testimony and we have done every single good work that our Christian existence is intended to fulfill on this earth, only then can our earthly life come to its closure and will we then be transferred to heaven to receive our eternal reward. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 4, For I am poured out as a drink offering unto God. The time of my departure has now come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. See, our heart and our mindset should be to let nothing sway us. Paul says, let, I let nothing move me until I finish my course. And Paul just wanted to finish well. And that's what we should want to do. God knows what the finish line is. 
We should just want to finish well, not knowing when that's going to be. Now, notice we're told in verse 7 here that when they had finished their testimony, they were indestructible prior to that time. But when they finished their testimony, then the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, now that's the first of over 30 times we're going to see that title used as a reference to the Antichrist, to this one world global ruler that will exist during the time of the tribulation period, who starts out, as we've talked about, by gaining his position by peaceful political deception to gain his position, but then he will become like a ferocious, demonically inspired beast that will devour humanity in his evil intentions, and any who resist his power and authority or any who represent Christ and it appears that he will be very clearly demonically guided, I believe to some degree, potentially even demonically possessed. It tells us that he ascends out of the bottomless pit. Something of the origin of the bottomless pit is inhabiting this beast, the Antichrist. We'll see more of him, particularly in chapter 13. But like Satan himself, he hates and seeks to rob, kill, and destroy anything that's of God. And that's why we see him here, overcoming and fighting and warring against and ultimately killing or murdering these two prophets at this point. Verse 8 then tells us, and their dead bodies will then lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord is crucified. Now, keep in mind, particularly this may be a little bit more difficult for us to get the gravity of this. In those cultures, particularly hot Mideastern climates, and in many cultures of the world today, typically they would bury a body the same day someone would pass. One, it was for hygienic reasons and logistical reasons. So for bodies to lay dead in a street for three days was the, the epitome of utter disgrace to a person to just leave a dead person's body there. And here, notice it says, as a way to disgrace them and disrespect them, these two witnesses, they leave their bodies laying there in the street, it says, for three days. Now, he describes the great city, verse 8, in which our Lord was also crucified. Now, that indicates to us that this was Jerusalem. Now, the sad thing is this city, Jerusalem, which was intended to be a holy city for God, intended to be light to the world, sadly at this time is very dark and corrupt because notice it tells us verse 8 of Jerusalem that spiritually it is called at this time Sodom and Egypt. That was how God viewed the city of Jerusalem at that particular time period from a spiritual perspective, just like Sodom and just like Egypt, two Old Testament locations that were characterized, were they not, by things like severe rebellion to God, tremendous arrogance of mankind. They were marked, those communities of Sodom and Egypt, by things like brazen, immoral living, sexual perversion, barbaric cruelty and violence, tremendous idolatry, demonic activity. And here, this is God's assessment of the spiritual condition of the city at that time. Now, I look at this, and again, to me, it's very interesting to know that God makes spiritual assessments of cities, likely of nations, of people groups, which causes me then to wonder, what would God's spiritual assessment be of some of our cities in America? What would God's spiritual assessment be of our nation right now that it would be like fill in the blank? You know, wasn't it Billy Graham who many, many years ago said that if God doesn't one day severely judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah? And he said that a long time ago. We have to wonder, what's God's assessment? As he looks upon us here, God's assessment, he said, spiritually, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah down there. It's like Egypt at this time. Verse 9 goes on to then tell us, and then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put into graves. Notice, not allow their bodies to be put. They were refusing and not letting 
their bodies be buried at this time. Because humanity is so depraved, they forced and they wouldn't allow them to be buried for three and a half days laying there. Now, in John's day, it would be impossible for people of tribes and nations and all over the world to see these men's bodies laying there for three days. Yet in this generation, it's incredibly easy for people of all nations who dwell on the earth to be able from tribes and tongues and all nations to see dead bodies laying in the street of a city for three days straight. Again, in our current generation with modern technology of camera and TVs and satellites and Wi-Fi and the devices we have, everyone can live stream images on their devices and we can see what's going on in real time anywhere on the earth. Again, God knew these things would come to pass. And so it says for three days, their bodies are laying there and everyone's witnessing, everyone's watching. No doubt reporters are there and people are live streaming what's going on. And as if the disgrace of not burying their bodies was not sufficient, verse 10 says, and all those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, have parties and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. So sadly, it's like a spontaneous international holiday erupts all over the globe when these two witnesses are murdered and their bodies lay there in the streets celebrating their brutal murder, celebrating their disgrace of their bodies laying there. Humanity felt so tormented because of their dark and corrupt ways by their righteous message so wicked and ungodly had people become that when these two witnesses are finally killed and their, their corpses lay there for three and a half days in disgrace, as people are mocking and celebrating, people are so happy to be rid of them. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, literally, they're not just having a celebration. It says they're sending gifts to one another. It doesn't say they're giving gifts. They're sending gifts. How? Through Amazon Prime. <laughs> Think about that sending gifts? They just say they're giving gifts. In this generation, you can send gifts all over the globe. They're literally sending gifts to celebrate how sad and demented humanity becomes in their immorality, in their dark ways of living. Boy, amazing the depths that people can sink to in their behavior. Look, folks, again, can I say this is why there is in every generation a need for witnesses for the Lord to shine light into the darkness of the depravity of mankind. Verse 11 says, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of the life of God enters them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So look how this concludes here. After allowing humanity to behave corruptly in their mockery, for a few days, for a short time, God says enough is enough, and then God displays his power. And I find this almost strategic. It's almost as if God waits till all the cameras are rolling. He waits three and a half days. He's got all the reporters on site, all the cameras are rolling, and people are like following this for day after day. What's going to happen today in Jerusalem? And, 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 and you have people there, and they're watching what's going on and kind of mocking everything. And imagine the scene as all of a sudden now the breath of the life of God comes into them, and their bodies start moving, and God ends up raising them from the realm of the dead and they stand upon their feet. I mean, we could just imagine the reactions of people who were there in person celebrating and witnessing this. Then on top of it, you have people who are online, you have news reporters keeping track of what's going on in live you know, transmission. You have people streaming it on social media, wanting to you know, see what's going on there and streaming it and mocking it of all the horrific things and talk about the total shock. When all of a sudden now, somebody goes, did his finger move? And, and apparently they must have pretty substantial wounds because they were murdered. All of a sudden the wounds heal. 
and the breath of the life of God comes in, and then all of a sudden, then they stand up on their feet. And now they realize these two men are back alive, and God's publicly indicating how pleased he is with these two faithful servants. And if that were not enough, it tells us in verse 11, God wants to make it evident. So he invites them to heaven publicly. It says they all heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. You're done being disgraced down there. You come up here. And they get a chance to hear what any faithful servant of the Lord wants to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You now enter the joy of the Lord. Your time down there is over. And they hear, come up here. And it says people watch them. Notice, it doesn't say that they quickly went up to heaven like the rapture. It says people watch them ascend up into heaven as they enter up into glory. The end of verse 12 and the end of verse 11 tell us their enemies were seeing this. And great fear fell upon them. I imagine it did. <laughs> they seen quite a bit, and they realized, oh my goodness, despite all we just did, apparently God is the one who's really in charge, not us. And as if God wanted to make it all the more evident, it tells us, verse 17, 13, in the same hour, then there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Once again, God brings another mighty earthquake to show his power. And think about this, folks. Though God at any point, at any point, God could, in all of his almighty power, he could just destroy everything on the earth. And he could destroy every human being on the earth. But again, God, in his merciful restraint, it tells us only a partial amount of the city was destroyed and only 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. That was God's restraint. That was God's mercy. It was God's way, again, of shaking humanity to let them realize that he is the one who is the God of heaven and earth and the God of all glory. And having watched the two witnesses come back to life and slowly ascend into heaven, and then God shaking the earth in this powerful way, it tells us that they gave glory to the God of heaven, realizing Wow, God is real. And all of a sudden, eternal reality set in upon humanity in that moment of eternal destination. Interesting, they call him the God of heaven because they realize all of a sudden the reality of the torment of hell and the glories of heaven and eternal realities got real crystal clear again in that moment. Look, as we head into another new year, by way of encouragement, let me just say, may God help us to focus a little more on eternal realities, eternal realities, because that's what matters most. That's what ends up making life purposeful for the Christian. That should direct what we do and what we sacrifice for and what we dedicate ourselves to for most. And let me leave you with this thought. Even as God made spiritual assessments of Jerusalem, I can't help but to wonder, what is God's spiritual assessment? of our church. What's God's spiritual assessment of my life, of your life? That should matter to us. God, what's your assessment of me spiritually that we would care about spiritual things foremost? Let's stand again.